Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Throughout the month of December, the Ringer staff will be releasing their year-end reviews covering the best and worst of 2019 in sports, TV, movies, music, and more. This week, we're getting started with Shea Serrano and Rob Harvilla on the best albums of the year, and Allison Herman and Chris Ryan break down the best TV shows. We'll have tons more in the coming weeks, so make sure to check it out on TheRinger.com. David, Kamala Harris ended her presidential campaign today. Mm-hmm. Note my emphasis, because what I want to know is, and please be honest, when did you learn how to correctly pronounce <laughs> Kamala Harris's <laughs> name? Um, um, I mean, the safe thing would be to say that I haven't even learned it to this point so that no one can like call me out <laughs> on being incorrect. I feel like it's one of those things that I probably learned like the third time I like saw her or heard of her, but like forgot repeatedly. Um, it's like every time I try to say like Turkish President Erdogan, I trip over the picture of the letters in my head. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, man. I mean, I think with confidence, with confidence, I mean somewhere around the first debate maybe the second debate how long i don't know Do, i mean i'm sure there's there's audio evidence of me putting my foot in my mouth i'm sure we delivered at least one post debate pod where we mispronounced her name repeatedly oh my gosh which is which is really everything you want out of a quick reaction pod the host cannot pronounce the name of the candidates correctly Jim has gone back and re-edited all those, I hope, to make it sound like we knew what we were talking about. That that <laughs> yeah. and all the Ukraine sure references. going to use it for the end of this one. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah, this is... I love mo- moments in American life where all of society figures out how to pronounce something at the same time. Yes. There have been Middle Eastern country moments like Hatar, you know, where none of us knew, and then it became the news. Yeah, you're right. The Ukraine, the Ukraine thing was another recent one. Yeah. And then we all pretend we always knew. Yeah, no, and then there's always like once a once a year there'll be a professional athlete that just corrects us on the way we've been saying his name for 15 years, um, <laughs> or someone like remember when Jeff Hornacek like just he announced he was changing the pronunciation of his name back in the day. I don't know if that was if that was a, a decision that he made or if it was we'd been doing it wrong. That that happens a lot. But I guess if I know Jim's presumably listening to this, the best use of his time. I think would just to be to put together like an in memoriam reel, like with a with soft music playing in the background of of us just saying her name incorrectly over and over and over again. That would that that's that's definitely what what, what he should be doing. We are the Pete Buttigieg of Media Podcast. This is the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Hello, media consumers. You got Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker here. Lots and lots to get to today, including the critical reaction to Martin Scorsese's long-slash-too-long gangster epic, The Irishman. We're going to pay tribute to the late great critic Clive James, plus the overworked Twitter joke of the week. But David, let's begin with breaking news. This is almost emergency pod zone. Remember when Kamala Harris was going to be president? (laughs) Or at least had a pretty good path to the Democratic nomination? Yep. Well, we've gone from that to her not even running. Let me quote the letter Harris sent out to her staff today as she ended her campaign 11 months ago at the launch of this camp of campaign in Oakland. Excuse me. I told you all I'm not perfect, but I will always speak with decency and moral clarity and treat all people with dignity and respect. I will lead with integrity. I will speak the truth 
And that's what I've tried to do every day of this campaign. So here's the truth today. I've taken stock and looked for, at this from every angle. And over the last few days, I've come to one of the hardest decisions of my life is, by the way, is quitting a campaign ever not one of the hardest decisions of the candidate's life. Anyway, continuing, my campaign for president simply doesn't have the financial resources we need to continue. The news comes after Harris had qualified for the December 19th Democratic debate. Here's where I want to start, David. Is this a case of a formidable presidential campaign blowing up like a supernova or is the right way to look at Harris that this is a lot like, you know, Amy Klobuchar's campaign or Cory Booker's campaign. One of those campaigns that made a lot of sense, but never got off the ground, except she had one good debate, which Mm. convinced us all that she was a front runner. Well, I mean, I think that she, I think that by a a lot of metrics uh, or I mean, metric might be the wrong word because I'm not speaking about hard numbers here, but, um, I think there's a lot of angles you can you can take to to view her as a more realistic candidate than those two. And, and I mean, there's a lot of ways you can look at it the opposite way, I'm sure. But she certainly had a little bit more of an outsider status than those two. She was she had been discussed. Uh, you know, she she was r- relatively fresher and newer on the on the na- national stage, and um, yes. you know had a had a had a lot had a had a um. I think a lot of the upside without a lot of the baggage of some of, you know, those other people that you named. Um, but I also think that there's, you know, I mean, there, it's, it's weird. I mean, somehow like her walking away and at least doing it the way that she did is maybe the most impressive part of her campaign to me. And I, and maybe that's, you know, I don't mean that as a backhanded compliment, but, um, you know, I mean, I think that if you really look back and take stock her her, her, you know, path was pretty difficult in the sense that, she was, I mean, she had been discussed as a presidential nominee, as a potential presidential, you know, Democratic nominee. And once that discussion takes place, there's not a lot of room for you to become the Pete Buttigieg of the race, right? I mean, you can't be the outsider who gets a lot of numbers because any, any anybody that's ha- that, that even had the cocktail party conversation that she, I mean, about, that, that people had about her, um, you know, you, you, the race that she's run, it, it's it's been so much. I mean, I mean the, the campaign that she's run has been something of a disappointment, at least the reaction to it. You know, she's done fine. The re, the, the results have, have been disappointing. And, um, you know, I, I'm not one that 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 gives anybody any extra credit for sticking in the race just to be more, you know, to, to, to increase your odds of being a VP pick. You know, I don't think you should. I mean, unless unless you have uh, you know, a specific platform point that you think needs to be aired out there. Um, you know, there's no reason to, to, to stay on the debate stage just for vanity purposes. So, you know, congratulations to kudos to her for seeing, you know, the honest lay of the land out there and, and, and reacting. Is that how the VP thing plays? Because isn't there a scenario here where you walk away now rather than finishing sixth or seventh in Iowa State well, she was apparently going all in on, and you seem like a better VP because you walked away and you didn't lose. I think that's probably, I think that's that's more correct than what I said. But I, the point that I was trying to make was just more the vanity point. I mean that she that, that there's no reason to stay in just because just to continue to campaign haplessly. You know, I mean just to just to continue to keep your name in the in the in the news. Um, Maybe, and maybe this is a calculated effort. I mean, it's a very calculated decision meant to 
kind of win the war in the end. But regardless, this seems like the right decision at this point in time. I just wish that, um, I mean, after after her, you know, you mentioned that she was up in the polls after that first debate. And we, you know, we, we covered the last debate and, and I was, I guess, relatively effusive about her. I thought that she just had turned in an incredible performance and a really compelling argument for maybe the first time, as far as I'm concerned, for her candidacy. And you know, maybe it's maybe it's the Costanza, you know, you leave on a high note or whatever. But like it, it, to me, it's uh, it's, uh, you know, I, I mean, it's a similar thing with Castro, I guess. I guess there's, I, I don't I'm not going to name names, but there's people I would rather see, you know, shuffled off the shuffle off the stage ahead of her. But but I think that in, in that aside, I think she's probably making a wise decision here. A couple of data points that are interesting about the now former Harris campaign. One is. She, like almost seemingly every candidate in this race, fell into the Sarlacc pit that is health care for Democrats. Her big moment, you remember, several months ago was she was on CNN and she made a comment about eliminating private insurance. And then got into this whole, is she or isn't she for Medicare for all? Which you'll also remember is basically part of the reason that Elizabeth Warren has fallen down the polls in the last month or so or one of the reasons anyway, um, that, that's just baffling to me that this has become the issue that trips up all Democrats is, is health insurance and how pivotal mm-hmm. somehow that's become to the, you know, we may look back at this if there's a democratic president in the white house in 2021 and say, wait a second, no healthcare plan is going to get passed anyway. But that for whatever reason was the eliminator that was disqualifying people. Yeah, exactly. Of, of democratic candidates. And anyway, that's number one. The other thing is this big New York times piece that came out and, and probably presaged the end of this campaign. It was by three of their campaign pros, Jonathan Martin, Shane Goldmacher and Asted Herndon. Uh, lots of revelations about the craziness and disorder within Harris's campaign. Times got their hands on a resignation letter of Kelly Mellenbacher, who was her state operations director. Mellenbacher wrote, this is my third presidential campaign, and I have never seen an organization treat its staff so poorly. Uh, she was attacking Juan Rodriguez and Maya Harris, who is Kamala's sister and the campaign chairwoman. They had just had a bunch of layoffs. Uh, the piece also notes that Harris's relationship with Juan Rodriguez, her campaign director was quote frosty uh there was also this this whole dynamic david that harris was losing votes to pete Buttigieg, whom you mentioned who again here we are and it really seems like i don't i don't know if i would have i don't know i there i talked to political reporters here and there and a few of them told me Buttigieg is the one who has a chance to this is a couple of months ago has a chance to come in and up in this race i'm kind of surprised we're honestly here where somebody like Harris is no longer running at all. And Pete Buttigieg is arguably in the driver's seat for, if not just Iowa, then maybe Iowa, New Hampshire. That's pretty crazy to me. Yeah. I mean, I think that with the speed at which, you know, we process political news, um, you know, it's, it's, it's impossible for, for anyone with any experience to really run an outsider campaign, like I said before, and Buttigieg just sort of like fell into that role. Um, I mean, obviously beat Beto and and you know any other potential opponents to that into that slot, and 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 he's and he's you know 
he's he's gonna take he's gonna go a long way with it when you know he's 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 got he's got a lane he's got a couple of lanes that he's occupying that nobody else is um i'm interested in the healthcare thing i mean i think it kind of begs a longer discussion at some point but you know i think that that we are i mean some somewhere between the way debates are moderated and the way that political discourse happens on twitter where like you know in social media in general where you know the the minority party still are still has these little like you know interesting squabbles as if it was the governing party um and we start and every and there's you know purity tests left and right you kind of have to be an extreme candidate one way or the other at least in in reference to the rest of the field to to have a to have a had to have a lane and i think the harris campaign struggled to really find that lane to find what really set that campaign apart at least you know platform wise from everybody else and um this was not the cycle for a candidate like her despite her you know many positive positive attributes i think everybody sort of the reaction that i've been seeing is sort of people who were like generally shocked but not shocked in this moment like nobody was surprised to hear this but it was all sort of there was a lot of you know like i really thought that she would do better and um but like having watched the past several months, it's like nobody's nobody's surprised that we got to this point. If anything, it's surprised that she just she couldn't figure out a way to, or she didn't, you know, carry on through Iowa like most candidates in her position would do. I think I think your point about healthcare is exactly right. I think the other thing that did, and we have to go back and look at the clippings to really confirm this, but it seems to me that the moment she started flip flopping on Medicare for all was the moment that the political press decided she wasn't a serious candidate or, or she's that she was kind of an amateur candidate. Now that's happened a bunch of times in this race, but it's with people like Biden who have all this other infrastructure behind them and all this other support behind them. She didn't. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I just, I remember at the time reading articles about her, it just felt like reporters decided like th- this is amateur hour. Mm-hmm. This person's not serious. And you know, again, that didn't end her campaign on its own, but man, that just feel like it colored all the coverage after that. I would like to bestow. I think that's right upon that comment. <laughs> and by the way, if your campaign is as disorganized as that Times piece pointed out that it was, remember they mm-hmm. had this whole thing about: Are we in on Iowa? Are we out on Iowa? We don't have any money. We don't know uh, how much to run kamala as a prosecutor or we don't know whether to be afraid that running her as a prosecutor will make lefty twitter mad if you're going through all these things in the way they are that's a bad sign for your administration i like kamala harris i really do i kind of thought i kind of thought she was gonna win this thing at one point but man that just seemed that's a (laughs) that's not that's not good as a preview of your administration no and you know, it seems like she picked wrong in her campaign director and her sister in running this. No, I, I, I think that it's a, it's a little bit trite. It's a little bit over. You know, it's, it's a, it's a little bit too easy to say like the way you run your campaign is the way you're gonna, you know, reflect on how you're gonna, you, you would, you would run an, you would run the the country or whatever you're running for. Um, but on some very basic level, we are interested in voting for a person who has who wakes up and does their job you know who has like a certain amount of control over the things they can control the thing you know the the operations going on around them and being able to tolerate being able to to tolerate that level of chaos is not a positive indicator of what you would do in that in any sort of significant you know position of significance like that so 
Um, I think it's I think you can look at it like that. It it seems like a cliche, but wasn't it basically true for Obama and Trump? Didn't, yeah. Don't their administrations basically reflect the chaos or lack thereof of their campaigns? Yeah, no, I, I, I think that I, I think that's I just think anytime anytime you feel yourself leaning into a cliche, you should investigate. But yes, I mean, I think in, in, the, in those cases and, and presumably this one, um, it's there's there's truth there. So that's the big 2020 news of the day. Do we do we have even more breaking news? Well, yeah, I mean, the, I mean, the, the, as we're first of all, this the Kamala Harris dropping out got more. I got more push alerts on my phone about that news than any single issue outside of Frozen Two. I think I've ever received. <laughs> but I, I like I, I went to get a cup of coffee and picked up my phone to like twelve push alerts, and I don't even like you know I'm not like subscribing to every political blog giving to send me push alerts on my phone. It was a lot of news. And then immediately, uh, right around that time, or immediately thereafter, there was uh, this news that the intelligence committee is fi- has, has officially reached their conclusion uh, in the in the Trump Ukraine investigation. I guess we'll see where we get from here. Um, there's a you know there's a lot left to be to be sorted out, but um, yeah, we'll probably be touching on that later this week. But this news is sort of breaking as we record this. The House Intel Committee concluding that the President Trump quote, use the power of his office to solicit foreign interference on his behalf in the 2020 election. Which is which is exactly what we kind of felt like we were leading to. But it does feel a little bit uh, it, it does feel like there's a lot of weight to this, like very straightforward New York Times headline that I'm staring at right now. Right. I mean, doesn't it feel yeah. a little bit like like somehow of all of the things we've been through during the Trump presidency, for better or worse, this feels like, you know, there's there's something here. Well, a couple months ago, I might have picked another country with exactly the same headline in terms yeah. of soliciting foreign interference. But yeah, you're right. And it seems like a it, it's amazing. It says something about Trump. It says something about us. And it says something about our news environment that we can, by the way, news about the president's potential impeachment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, again, soliciting foreign interference on his behalf in the 2020 election. Wow, more to come on that later in the week. All right, David, it's now time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod where they're always gratefully received. This is, by the way, going to be a baby Yoda free edition of the overworked Twitter joke of the week. Respecting spoilers, spoiler alerts? Or no, not, the- well, not only am I anti- baby yoda jokes i don't even know where to start i mean what 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 was what sorry what was the overworked baby yoda tweet of the week (laughs) there were nine billion by the way i went to i went to i went to a disney store in a in a in a giant mall yesterday to ask about and and just was like hey can i see the baby yoda section and uh and the woman who the, the very nice woman who was working there was just like no we don't have them in yet I haven't heard anything about when we'll get them in. I was just like, wow. Who's asleep at the wheel at Disney, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or Lucas. They're only making $100 billion every time I blink, and they not just get some baby Yodas into the store? Do they not foresee that taking off? Yeah, that, that's a real surprise with anything Star Wars. Wow. All right, so, so we agree that we've made too much of baby Yoda. Let's talk about The Irishman, David. Last week, last Wednesday, Martin Scorsese's movie was released on Netflix, allowing people to see it who didn't see it at a Hollywood theater with Leonard Malton. By the way, that is I went to the Egyptian in Hollywood to see it a couple weeks ago, and Leonard Malton 
was in the theater with me. This was not a critic screening, just Leonard Malton hobbling in uh, to watch it. That was weird. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, time to watch The Irishman as Martin Scorsese intended on my iPad in 20-minute chunks in between mandated family activity over the next four days. Thanks to Joshua <laughs> for that one. God, this is this is almost Baby Yoda level, but but I'm going through with it anyway. David, did you follow the Billy Eilish doesn't know who Van Halen is controversy? No, I was completely oblivious to this. Oh, oh, good. Eilish was on Jimmy Kimmel's College of Rock and Roll Knowledge, and she flunked. Listen to this. You know who Madonna is? I do know who Madonna is. You know? Uh, can you name a Van Halen? Who? <laughs> no, I'm who gonna is? start crying. Um, <laughs> Have you heard of Cindy Lauper? Yes. Huey Lewis. Some... No. Fill in the blank. Run DM. <laughs> what? I don't know when the uh, the Huey Lewis backlash is going to start. <laughs> just we just got Van Halen backlash. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write. <laughs> oh, so Billie Eilish is dumb because she hasn't seen Van Halen. That movie sucks. Hugh Jackman's worst performance. Easy. <laughs> Thanks to David Mulhern for that. And finally, David, I don't know if you checked out the Egg Bowl on Thanksgiving night. That's the annual football game between Ole Miss and Mississippi State. Mm -hmm. Ole Miss was down seven with four seconds left in the game when this happened. Here comes the pressure. Corral towards the goal line. It is caught. It is a touchdown. Elijah Moore. And they're an extra point away from after the play. Oh. Uh-oh. Big time extra point here. If this is excessive celebration. What you can't see there is Ole Miss wide receiver Elijah Moore, who scored the potential game-tying touchdown, celebrating by crawling across the end zone on all fours and lifting his leg like a dog going to the bathroom. <laughs> the refs called unsportsmanlike conduct because you really can't celebrate like a dog going to the bathroom. They assessed a 15-yard penalty, and then Ole Miss missed the extra point and lost the game. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, for the first time in history, a team has literally pissed away a game. Thanks to... <laughs> Michael Lev and Argyle Umbrella, if you paid attention to Mississippi football at all last week, congrats, you made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. All right, David, before we get to the notebook dump, let us take a quick break. For over 115 years, Oris has been making purely mechanical watches in Holstein, Switzerland. Staying true to a rich heritage, Oris is one of the few Swiss watch companies to remain independently owned and operated. And because of this independence, Oris has the freedom to follow its own path. They're focused on bringing change for the better, which means making choices that are ecologically, socially, and financially responsible. That includes ocean conservation and recycled plastic partnerships. Of course, that's along with Oris's century-long and change commitment to making inventive, high-functioning Swiss-made watches that serve a real purpose, and at prices that make sense, the best possible watch for the money. Comprised of four themes, diving, aviation, motorsport, and culture, Oris watches are made for everyday wear. Shop the many different unique styles at oris.ch slash pressbox. You're sure to find one that's your style and suits your tastes. That's oris.ch, not .com, slash pressbox. All right, David, time for the notebook dump. 
And you know, back in the 1970s, you had to pick a side in movie criticism. Were you for Pauline Kael or were you for Andrew Saris? Well, mm. here in 2019, at least at The Ringer, the choice is between Sean Fennessy and Bill Simmons. And the question is, is the Irishman too long, as Bill says, or is it not too long, as Sean says? I really don't want to answer that question right now. I'm, I'm on Team Bill, by the way, as somebody who had to sit in a the theater and see it. But I do kind of want to talk to you about reactions to the Irishman. Yeah. Because these feel revealing in a way about film criticism and cultural criticism. And I guess I'll start here. And this is as somebody, again, who who enjoyed the movie, but but probably doesn't think it's an all-timer and, and thinks it's being a little bit overrated. But isn't one of the most popular journalistic templates of all time, the old guy still has it? Oh, yeah. Or the old master still has a few tricks up his sleeve? Yes. And I feel like Martin Scorsese making a movie that is at all watchable at this point in his life and career. He's 77 years old. Like hitting that mark is just going to guarantee you this enormous wave of critical goodwill because you're an old guy, you're an old guy we love and you did something good. Can I attribute at least some of the Irishman reaction to that? Uh, yeah, I think, I think so. Especially coming off, you know, Thanksgiving where we all hung around with our grandfathers and, you know, saw how they were losing steps or, or, or dads even. Um, <laughs> wow. That was heavy. Uh, <laughs> no, you just keep coming, you come, yeah, you come away from those moments and you see somebody who's just still, you know, an incredible artist and, uh, yeah, it, it, it really works. I mean, listen, it's, it's weird to think of Scorsese as the old guy who sells a few tricks up his sleeve. I mean, it's not like he's, you know, coming back from some some period of inactivity, you know, he hasn't laid, there's no dormancy, uh, in Scorsese's career. He's made, you know, he's made what, like 12 movies this day. I mean, this, this, uh, this century. Um, and he has like two more like on the agenda. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's the way that a lot of people are coming to this, you know, I mean, we all, we, we, part of it's the way the media works now. I mean, we can speak from firsthand experience of the ringer. I mean, not without giving too much away. I don't think, think people can probably imagine but we're always looking for new ways to celebrate sort of unobjectionable things right i mean we're like very clickable headlines like martin scorsese is a good director i mean that's that's like that's that's fertile fertile ground there damn it i was working on that piece for tomorrow i can't believe uh (laughs) i can't believe somebody already got it no i think that's right your point's well taken like he's been making movies and he's also been he's been making movies that have that have been good at least to a lot of people I can't say I've seen a ton of the recent ones, but I guess there's a couple of there's a couple of different versions of the old guy still has it. There's the one like this where he's hitting a mark and this movie is just getting more play than a lot of his other movies. Then there's the Robert Altman version. Remember that one of the old guy still has it? Oh, yeah. Where he'd been kind of in the Hollywood wilderness and he had to come back with the player and shortcuts. And then I feel he had like another comeback with Gosford Park. Yeah. Some years after that, there was a big deal. I was also just trying to think of like other people in American life who have gotten the old guy still has it treatment. I came up with Peyton Manning, <laughs> that last Super Bowl run. Yeah. Even though he could barely throw the ball five yards. It, it, can you think of anybody else? We could we could turn this over to the uh to press box 
uh, on Twitter too at the press box pod, but who I feel there, there are, there's some other people I'm missing who've gotten that, I guess a lot of old actors too. I mean, we could say, Hey, Joe Pesci's getting that treatment for, and yes, and Harvey Keitel de- for the Irishman. He's definitely getting that. I mean, anybody that, uh, you know, the Tarantino types have, have resurrected over mm. the years. Travolta definitely still has that. And, and, uh, and, 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 you know, I, I mean, actors, I think are probably the most obvious category. Um, I mean, I saw somewhere on the, I think several news channels today were like celebrating Jimmy Carter, you know, putting nails and boards uh, after his recent uh, surgery or whatever. But I mean, but the, I mean, I think it's just, it's easy to, we all love this narrative. I mean, it's a victory narrative that we can all associate ourselves with because we all hope to be there someday. We always feel like we ourselves still have a, a lot to give, you know? Well, I don't know about you and I on that one. How about John LaCare? Hasn't he been in like the 30-year? Oh, yeah. Year no, yes. Old guy still has it. Novelists get it so much. I don't know why I didn't think about that. That's, I mean, that's that's a perfect one. The one I'm waiting for, and again, this is not a guy who's not been working or even really is that all that old, but is it, imagine when the next Steven Spielberg movie that like hits the three and a half star level Mm-hmm. comes out because he's had stuff he's had stuff that's kind of worked but it's been a little bit of a dry spell i feel spielberg mania you know the old master is back that that's like that's coming up next couple years it really is yeah uh the other thing here is something that scorsese himself brought up this is something else i've seen in the reviews which is scorsese versus marvel oh yeah and that whole bit because I think if you look at critics, at least generationally, uh, the kind of people that write for The Ringer, they're not at all upset about the Marvel era. They like those movies. They find they can look at those movies and find, you know, auturiness in them. They can find quality in them. And, and I feel the same way. But they don't want to be locked in that world. Like any film critic, they don't want a world where Marvel is the only thing. And so Martin Scorsese comes along and says, hey, I've made a three and a half hour movie about my passions that doesn't star Iron Man. And as much as people may have even been on the Marvel side of the initial argument, I think those same critics want Scorsese working because, again, it makes their job a lot more palatable. What do you think about that? Yeah, nobody wants only Marvel stuff. Um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, Scorsese's. A, I mean, an incredible. I mean, he's the director of his generation. I mean, there's no, there's no questioning it. But he's also like, you know, he made Shutter Island not that long ago. You know, I mean, he made. I'm not. I don't want to get in this whole conversation. I mean, but he made a bunch of mob movies, which in another generation we would have looked at as, you know, light fare, um, at least conceptually. I think that. You know, nobody wants. I think we what we what we want is more Scorsese's, right? I mean, we want people making popular movies that don't that aren't necessarily like what he would say. You know, probably call like lower, not lowest, but lower common denominator uh, movies. <laughs> I love um, lower common denominator. But uh, yeah, I mean, yes, I, I this is a. I think everyone's very sympathetic to his point of view, and also very, you know, interested in the the traffic that 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 it, that it, you know that point of view drives and, and and the the angst that sort of, I mean listen nobody in the current generation or no diehard marvel fan wants to wants to be told that their movies aren't 
movie, aren't films, aren't art, aren't whatever. But um, this is like this is one of those classic arguments where I don't think anybody particularly disagrees with one another. We just like you know just deliberately misunderstanding or misinterpreting or overblowing things which makes us um you know makes for makes for good online back and forth ingredient number three martin scorsese gives lots of interviews oh yeah and has for years we love available masters we love we love artistic masters but better yet we love extremely available masters and martin scorsese Mm -hmm. is incredibly available and the last one I came up with is that, that he is a link, speaking of art films and personal films, he's a link to the 70s. And yeah. he's probably one of the last links to the 70s that's still alive and still working. And as a journalistic, you know, reason to write a piece, man, that's really powerful. I do it all the time with sports writers, people who are still going concerns who are still making things but are a link to a previous golden age of making things those are incredible subjects and to me scorsese is that in addition to all the other stuff yeah i mean 100 percent availability is uh is nine 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 tenths of sympathy i don't know you're you're absolutely whatever it is that's (laughs) that's that's the right point availability is nine tenths of the uh getting the profile assigned Mm-hmm. David, we do not do Irish wake mode here very often at the press box, but I think this guy requires it. It is Clive James, the Australian critic, uh, writer of all kinds. I saw the word polymath used in the New York Times obit, which is pretty, you know, probably an overused na- thing, but perfect for him because Clive James literally wrote everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, passed away after a long battle with cancer. He announced he had cancer back in 2012 uh, at age 80. Left behind this huge corpus of work, including recently a book where he wrote very long and very interestingly about Game of Thrones. Uh, did a lot of things, was probably most famous or at least got famous for his TV critic, in, or excuse me, as a TV critic in the British newspaper, The Observer. Uh, column he started writing in the 1970s i feel this is a guy that you and i when we were back in the days when we were going to use bookstores and buying literally everything that we were scooping up any clive james collection we could find because he was sort of like it was almost like oh man i'm reading anthony lane in the new yorker oh wait i found i found the er anthony lane yeah. I found the guy who was doing all those tricks 30 years before. Yeah, I mean there's a there are a lot of those old critics who uh, you know, I I found bought in old copies of hardcover books and and uh attended them like they're, you know, part of the National Archive in my apartment or whatever, but I but there but he's he's definitely at the top. And and I think more I mean he you know, he came from a prolific generation, but he was prolific beyond, you know, most people's comprehension. And consistent and brilliant, and um, and you're right about the doing those tricks. I mean, he had the ability to, um, you know, wow you with a with uh, with the shift between you know with with the with with the shrug between sentences. You know, I mean, he could he could do he he could make you 
he could put a smile on your face when you're reading him on the subway. You know, I mean, that's a, it's a, it's a, and just with wit, not with humor. You know, I mean, that's a, it's a, he's, it was, he's, he's part of a very rare class. Among other things, James will be remembered for David is an amazing poem called "The Book of My Enemy Has Been Remaindered." <laughs> yes, yes. This goes on for verse after verse, but I'll just read you a couple of lines. The book of my enemy has been remaindered, and I am pleased. In vast quantities it has been remaindered, like a van load of counterfeit that has been seized. And he goes he goes on and on and on. I think another thing about him that's so fascinating is his influence on American critics, mm-hmm. especially uh because he was being he was writing he was writing in an age or or started writing in an age where his stuff was hard to get in america this was this was this was not only pre-internet this was pre-vhs tape um according to leo robson's very good piece about james and the new statesman the new yorker essayist adam gopnik didn't discover james until the appearance of his book first reactions by which point he says he was already half formed as a writer but he clearly picked up some of James's tricks, the love of inversion and wordplay and bracing generalization. Mm. Um, another one is James Wolcott, who was influenced yeah. by James. He said he conceded in a village voice piece, bidding farewell to James's TV column that he'd stolen from him, quote, left and right. And this is, I think, my favorite. Martin Amos was so indebted to James's tone in his book reviews that Kingsley Amos, himself a big influence on James's style, would insist on reading his son's book reviews aloud in an Australian accent. <laughs> now think That's what fantastic. an amazing move that is. You are you are doing Clive James, so I'm going to read your book reviews in an Australian accent. That yeah, is think- that is incredible parental trolling. Nothing that happened, David, at your That is so good. Thanksgiving dinner uh, lived up to that. <laughs> the only other one I wanted to uh, share with you, another line, we could quote James lines all day, but he was writing, he was a, he was a huge smoker. I believe he smoked 80 cigarettes a day at his height. Uh, he had a line. I smoked so much that I, that I needed the hubcap of a Bedford van as an ashtray, but this is even better. He smoked a lot of pot too. And he wrote the immortal line, I not only bogarted that joint, I Lee Marvined it, <laughs> which is really great. <laughs> really, really good stuff. RIP to Clive James. And if you don't know his work, go out and grab one of his collections everywhere that fine collections are sold. All right, time for David Shoemaker Guesses, the strained pun headline. Okay. Patiently awaiting David's. There we go. Last week's strain pun headline was <laughs> I did bad heavy, last week. You did. Heavy time monks seek enlightenment. As usual, David, our listeners were way funnier than we are. Everybody, and I mean everybody, baby Yoda level everybody, wrote to say, why wasn't the headline Chunky Monkey? Oh, Chunky my monkey. God. Oh, oh my. That's, the- that's why we do this. That's why we do this, to get those kind of puns from our listeners. But wait, there's more. Steve Hendrickson and Steve Bonifero suggest chow of silence. Chow of silence. Oh, my gosh. Michael O'Keefe suggests padded tie. (laughs) 
Simone E. Simone suggests the art of thin, not the art of Zen, but the art of thin. Kayfabe Rabin suggests Watt Watchers. <laughs> That's pretty inside. <laughs> Doug is my co-pilot says, brother, what ate thou? <laughs> pretty, pretty good for monks. Soup Dog and Jeff Hoffman suggest deep fat fryers. If I are. Oh, my God. That's great. That's great. Yeah. And Made Up Movie has a slight uh, amendation. You want fryers with that. <laughs> you want fryers with that. This week's pun headline comes from Matt Simmons. It's from the Wall Street Journal. They did a piece back in October, David, where they were checking out the homes of food and beverage entrepreneurs. What a Wall Street Journal conceit that is, checking out the homes of... Homes of food and food. beverage. Like people that make like... What, like like the creator of Mr. Pibb or something? <laughs> I think it's a little more refined than that. One of the people they went home with was a whiskey entrepreneur. So they went to the house of the whiskey entrepreneur. Now, this was a headline that was used inside the paper. So this was not the main headline. But if you can think of kind of a funny little inside the paper headline, what was the Wall Street Journal's Strained pun headline for a whiskey at home with a whiskey entrepreneur. What? Uh, um, God, at home with a whiskey, uh, whiskey bur- bourbon, right? I mean, it's not on the house, right? Ooh, that's really good. That's not it, but that's really good. Um, the actual one is much uh, more strained than that. I'll give you that. There's that old, like, there's a, like, man. It's that, de- like, I don't know why I have, like, a the, the voice of, like, my one of my grandparents saying, it would, used to say home and dry, but that's th- that would fit, but that no one uses that, right? <laughs> that's uh, really funny, too. Um, <clears throat> uh, whiskey, whiskey, whiskey. Uh, shot, uh... It is not poor house, by the way. To also oh, use that's the really good. Familiar that's really pub good. pun. Um, old, old fashioned. Let me give you guys a little a little guidance here. You're not going out. You're stay, staying, ordering in, staying in. Yeah. So stay. Kind of uh, a pun. Stay. Mm. Staying in. It's it's really terrible. Let me give it to you. Okay, it's give it. Whiskey a stay stay. Oh not no! Whiskey a, not whiskey a go. That is the worst thing I've ever heard. Whiskey a stay stay. I can see Chris checking my work on the on the. Uh, <laughs> Are you clicking through? Right I now? promise it's real. That might be oh one of the worst gosh. we've ever had. He is David <laughs> Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Cackling is Chris Almeida. Production magic by Jim Cunningham. We're back Friday with more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you later, Brian. <laughs>